The following is a presentation of Genesis. Genesis is a place where you are invited to begin, belong, and believe. To find out more, visit us on the web at genesisthejourney.com. Uh, Paul, I've known Paul now for almost five years, about four and a half years. Uh, we've been able to hang out in a few different venues. Of, we did some youth ministry together, and he's pretty crazy. Past two in the morning, he does some really weird things. and uh, So it was fun hanging out with Paul doing youth ministry. And um, uh, certainly Paul is an elder here at the church, so it is a great joy to serve with him as an elder uh, at the church. And most recently, uh, Paul has been on the team Uh, the task force that has been part of looking into Genesis uh, church planting as an independent church. And so over the last six months, uh, Paul has been uh, very instrumental into uh, speaking into Genesis as a church plant. And uh, he's been very, like I said, just instrumental. So I'm really excited for you guys to get to hear uh, from him. And uh, let me pray for him and pray for us and pray that God would speak in our time together tonight. So Father God, we give thanks for the opportunity that we have to gather uh, as a community. And Father, we have lifted our hearts and our voices to you uh, because you are worthy of it. God, you have been good, you have been kind, you have been gracious, and you do these things in increasing measure. And we want to continue just to give you thanks. We want to make a big deal of who you are uh, in our time together in this place tonight. And Father, I pray that uh, your blessing, your hand of favor would be on my friend Paul as he would bring forth uh, the scriptures that you have laid upon his heart. God, I pray that tonight as a community, we would be excellent at listening not only to what Paul has to say, but most importantly, what you would have to say uh, through him, uh, through your scriptures. So Father God, would you open our eyes to see everything that you would have for us to see in this place and open our hearts that we would receive everything that you would have us receive. Uh, So Father God, we are ready and we are available uh, to hear from you in this place tonight. So speak, God. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. How are y'all tonight? Good. All right. I can't see many of you very well. I can see you guys right here. All right. Um, Well, thank you very much for uh, inviting me to be here with you tonight. Um, How many of you know that when Jesus taught, when he taught in the synagogue, he sat on the chair? You know, that was the teaching thing. So for any of you who are, you know, a little confused, I am not Jesus. It says so on my license. So... Um, not to worry. So anyway, uh, who, who am I? Um, again, my name's Paul Fleming. Um, I've lived in the area for, for most of my life. I grew up in Burlington. I've uh, spent a lot of time overseas, uh, notably Cape Town, South Africa, and Singapore. My wife and I and our family spent 10 years in Singapore. So um, ask me about that sometime. Pretty, pretty interesting stuff. And we've been back here in this area for 10 years, and I've been at Hope for about five years. And uh, as Michael mentioned, I've been uh, an elder at Hope for about three years and serving in that capacity. And uh, it's just a, a real pleasure to be here with you guys tonight. So uh, thanks, thanks again for having me. Um, what I'd like to do is uh, just kind of introduce uh, the text tonight. We're going to be talking about the parable of the sower. Uh, that's in Mark chapter 4. And we're going to look at the first uh, part of uh, Mark chapter 4, verses 1 to 9 right now and then get into uh, the rest of it, verses 10 to 20, a little bit later. So um, if you can throw that up on the screen, um, verses 1 to 9, follow along. Great. And so verse 1, again, Jesus began to teach by the lake, and the crowd that gathered around him was so large that he got into a boat and sat in it out on the lake. And while while all the people were along the shore at the water's edge, 
He taught them many things by parables, and in his teaching said, Listen, a farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants so that they did not bear grain. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up, grew, and produced a crop, multiplying 30, 60, or even 100 times. Before we get started, let's just pray real quick. Uh, Lord, uh, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth contained in it. And uh, Lord, I just pray that uh, tonight uh, you would allow me to uh, share these truths and uh, pray for uh, everyone here in this room tonight that they would be uh, good receivers of your word. And so, uh, Lord, uh, thank you for blessing this time in Jesus' name. Amen. So, um, what exactly is a parable? A parable is an, an, an illustration, meant to be a simple illustration, uh, by using a story with a setting and characters that would be familiar to the hearers. And in particular, the parable is meant to convey some, some truths in a very simple format. So the parable of the sower is a story that is very rich in the use of its farming terms and uh, in, a, in a time when agriculture was a big way of life. So the people at that time would have had a very good understanding of the terms used in this parable, and they would have had at least a basic understanding of what the parable was trying to say. And again, the parable is trying to convey, tru convey truth, not hide it. And you might see as we get along a little bit later on that it might seem like the parable is trying to hide truth, but um, it's not really. So um, we look at, uh, you know, in verse 1, the, um, uh, sorry, in the, the, the first character is the sower. So uh, as, we, as we talk, the sower goes out to sow the seed in this field. And uh, there's not really much in the story about the sower. The sower almost seems kind of incidental to the story, as we read. We we, the seed was, uh, was um, a part of the whole story throughout, and of course the soil. So we don't know anything about who the sower is or, or what he does, except that he's, he's a farmer. Um, yet, Jesus starts off this story with a word that says, just a simple word, listen. Or if you, if you have a King James Version, behold or hearken. Um, and then he says, the sower went out to sow, or the farmer went out to sow. So just by the fact that he says that, listen, and that comes up, the sower is a very important part of the story, although he doesn't get much attention. Now, how did he sow? He went out into this field. Um, I don't know how, how many of you come from farming uh, areas. I didn't. I grew up around here. I have no idea what a combine is. Um, no clue, actually. And uh, so I can kind of understand more relate to what this guy did. He would have gone out. He probably would have had a big bag of seed and just walked out in this field and scattered the seed by hand, throwing it in every direction as far as he could. Now, another key uh, to the way they sowed seed at that time, what, uh, you know, modern and even sort of, you know, in the last few hundred years, the way people farm is you plow first and then you put the seed in the ground. What they used to do is they used to scatter the seed all around, and then they would come after and plow the seed under the ground. So that's kind of an important point here, because as the sower was going along, he wouldn't know where the seed was going. So there was, uh, as you saw in the verses, there was um, uh, rocky soil. There was a pathway, 
right, like a walkway. It was hard, and then there was this rocky soil, and then there was soil with thorns in it, and uh, then, of course, the good so soil. So he wouldn't have been able to tell the rocky soil from the good soil, and so he would have just thrown it everywhere, kind of at abandon. So uh, let's talk about the seed. That's the, sort of the next element of the story. The seed is, again, the one constant throughout the parable. What exactly is a seed? And I think you all, you know, know you're like sunflower seed or a little, little thing like that, right? But one of the things that's interesting about a seed, seeds have always been a kind of an interesting little thing to me, especially when it comes to the Bible, as you'll see in a minute. But uh, a seed, by definition, doesn't have life. And what's the definition of life? Definition of life is um, something that metabolizes energy, right? We use energy. And also something that... Um, um, exchanges nutrients with the outside. So, you know, a cell is, uh, is alive. It exchanges nutrients with, uh, with the outside world, as we do. But a seed doesn't do either of those things. A seed doesn't metabolize energy, and it doesn't exchange any nutrients with the outside uh, world. It just sort of sits there. And so um, seeds are, are, I guess the word for it is dormant. They don't do anything. And a seed can germinate after a hundred years. You can take a seed, put it on the shelf, and a hundred years later you can pick it up and there's a good chance that if it's, if it's you know, not been uh, rotted or anything that it would grow a hundred years later. Um, that's pretty amazing to me. So it's kind of a paradox in the seed that it, uh, it's not alive, but it's not dead. You know, it, it, but it has the capability for life. That's pretty interesting and it's very important again in the context of this story. The seed has, is something that has the capability to produce life, although it doesn't have life at the moment. The word seed is used 280 times in the Bible, in the King James Version, less in the NIV or other versions. But it's used in reference to both the plant kingdom and animal kingdoms. So obviously in the plant kingdom. But in the Bible, it's most often used to refer to human offspring. Look at what God said to Abraham in Genesis chapter 13, Verses 14 to 16. The Lord said to Abram after Lot had parted from him, Lift up your eyes from where you are and look north and south, east and west. All the land that you see I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth so that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. So there's an example of, of, of seed in the Bible. And, and again, the point of this story, the, as we'll see more, the multiplication of the seed, which is an important part of the parable. Um, this, refer, again, refers to the earthly seed, the ability that we as humans have to reproduce. But just as we need life to come from physical seed to be born, the Bible also refers to spiritual seed. We'll talk a little bit more about spiritual seed later. So this concept of seed is very important in the Bible yet we don't really hear that much teaching about it. Now, what are some of the important points about seed that the Bible makes? One, seed produces after its own kind. Are there any evolutionists in the audience out there? Right? An apple seed always produces another apple tree. Right? You can have green apples, red apples, Macintosh, whatever you want, but when you put that seed in the ground, it's going to come out an apple tree. Um, lions reproduce to make lions and elephants reproduce to make elephants. It's a biblical principle and is consistent with all scientific observations and in fact my own observations as well. So uh, it's very meaningful. Um, <laughs> not so much. 
Um, let's look at Genesis 1.11 for another example of seed and producing after its own kind. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it according to their various kinds. This is a very important principle in the Bible um, that um, we have the preservation integrity of species after its own kind. Number two, uh, seed depicts lineage. David was the seed of Abraham, and Jesus was the seed of David. The Bible devotes whole chapters to recording lineage. I don't know if you've ever read the Old Testament, and you're like, I'm going to read one chapter today, and all you read is you know, name after name after name. And uh, so why was that so important? Because the promised Messiah was supposed to come from the lineage of David. And that's why Matthew and Luke go to great pains to record the lineage of Jesus. Another point about seed is that seed multiplies itself. And this is, again, in, in accordance with God's will and co command to go forth and multiply. So this story is about uh, farming and sowing and, and wheat, you know, is the wheat and barley were the, were the crops that were probably planted in the story. So I have a picture of a wheat plant because I actually really didn't know that much about what wheat looked like. Um, you can tell I grew up around here. Um, so you've got the seed up on the, uh, up on the top there, just the one single seed. If you plant that, it produces that whole big plant. And, uh, you know, the interesting thing about it is, you know, this uh, down on the bottom here, um, I know I got the names there, I still don't know what you call it, but the, the thing on the top <laughs> where all the <laughs> seeds are, I'm not going to make it through Texas A&M, I can see that. Um, <laughs> that gives you a lot of seed for the, for the one seed. So, the, you know, when you talk about, how much you get from the one seed, that's the, the yield of the, of the plant, right, in sort of farm speak, not that I know. Um, another sort of frightening thing is that actually that thing that's on the top up there, you can't read it, but I read it earlier. It's called the beard. You know where all the seeds are? It's like, I'm, I'm not eating cereal anymore. So, uh, <laughs> anyway. Hopefully by now you're getting the idea that seed is a pretty important concept, uh, not only in this parable, but in the Bible as a whole. So when you're reading the Bible and you see the word seed, you know, maybe you can think of that wheat plant and this conversation. Um, so let's take a look at the soils. The soils are actually the main focus of the parable. Um, I think the seed gets way too little play in this parable, but that's just me. Um, Let's look at the soils. In this parable, you might think there are four kinds of soils, right? We had uh, the pathway, um, the rocky soil, the soil that, that had thorns in it, and then the good soil. But really, there's two kinds of soil in this parable that we really want to remember. So there's the unproductive soil and the productive soil, okay? So under the categories of the pr unproductive soil in this first half of the, um, of, uh, or in the parable, um, we see the, the wayside seed or the seed that was cast onto the pathway um, can be eaten easily, eaten by birds. Uh, other things that could happen, it get trampled on or blown away by the wind because it's just hard ground, right? The second uh, soil was a rocky soil. Um, so the idea is that there's, there's dirt, but it's filled with rocks, and the seed would go there, and it just doesn't, it doesn't have much of a chance to take root. It's... It, it, uh, um, 
the roots wouldn't have much to grab onto. And when the sun comes, as it said in the, in the verse, when the sun comes, it'll come and it'll bake that seed that's trying to grow and kill it. And the third um, soil was soil where the thorns would be, would be there. And as the plant grows, the thorns would overcome it and, um, and it wouldn't produce any fruit. And uh, in fact, as I was kind of digging around and doing some research, uh, you know, like looking up the wheat plant, um, I found that uh, one of the reasons that you could have like a corn crop and it doesn't bear any, any ears of corn would be that if you place them too close together. So if you, if you put the stalks or the seeds too close together, they'll actually grow, but they won't produce any, any ears of corn. So that's very similar to this idea of the thorns crowding the plant. It'll grow, but just the, those conditions won't allow it to, to um, produce any, any fruit or, um, or wheat seeds. And then, of course, uh, we have the productive soil, which allows the seed to take root, allows it to grow, it allows it to mature, and then to have a full um, yield of grain uh, for later. Now, you might have noticed in the, uh, in the story that it said that the, the, uh, the yield of the grain is 30, 60, or 100-fold in the good soil. And, uh, you know, again, for suburbanites like me who've never been to a wheat field before, 30 sounds reasonable to me, 60 sounds reasonable, 100, yeah, you name it, that sounds okay to me. Um, if I look at an ear of corn, another tidbit, an ear of corn has about 500 kernels of corn on it. Um, I didn't count them. Um, <coughs> but in reality, a 30 or 60 or 100-fold increase uh, uh, yield from, uh, from a, a wheat harvest is absolutely outrageous. It's unthinkable. In those times back then, a, a wheat field would yield seven or eight times what you sowed, okay? So um, a really good yield, like if you had good rain and good soil and that stuff, might be 10. To put things in perspective, in modern times, um, you're probably talking with, uh, you know, modern machinery and modern fertilization and uh, biometrics and all this stuff you can get 15 times for a yield of what you sow and maybe, uh, you know, 20. So even given today's standards, the 30, 60, or 100 is ridiculous. What's Jesus trying to say as he says that? He's making a point that there's a, it's so outrageous that there's something supernatural that has to happen to make that happen, and that's the point. So Jesus is waving a big flag to those people at that time listening to this story and saying, if, if you did this in this good soil, you could get 30, 60, or 100, and people would sit up, take notice, and they would listen. Um, and it wasn't just a trick to make them listen. It was part of one of the truths of the parable, right? So just to recap that first part, the sower goes out to sow. He sows it all out in the field. Some falls on the pathway. Some falls on the rocky soil. Some falls on uh, the soil that has thorns in it. And then we have some that falls on the good soil. And that produces good fruit. So when he finishes, he uh, says to them again, he that has ears to listen, let him hear. So it's kind of a warning. He's saying, if you can hear me, you better listen closely. 
And, and it, it is kind of a warning. So I just wanted you to pick that up because he, he's saying this is, a, this is a big truth. If you got ears, listen. If you miss it, you're going to miss something big. And there's a key to understand. So this is really the second time he's sort of using, you know, that, that um, command to listen. He did it in the beginning, and he's done it at the, the end of this, uh, of this passage. And there's a key to understanding the New Testament Bible. When you pick up your Bible, and Jesus, number first thing is, if Jesus says listen, really pay attention. If Jesus says listen twice, put down your coffee, grab your Bible with both hands, and really read it closely, because you need to pay extra attention. That basically, if you, whenever you see Jesus repeat anything twice, either one in a row, sometimes he does it in a row, and sometimes they do it at the beginning or the end of the passage. That's just sort of to flag out that that's something really important to listen to. Then comes a little bit of revelation. Um, the disciples, and it's interesting to note in this passage, you know, when we read this parable of the sower in the other gospels, it only refers to the disciples. The disciples came afterwards and they, were, they wanted to question Jesus about what was going on. In the gospel of Mark, he actually says, um, it actually says the disciples and the others that were with them. And to me, that's a pretty important point, and uh, we'll, we'll see why in a minute. But at this point, I think what I'd like to do is just sort of backtrack a little bit and say, um, what is the purpose of this parable anyway, before we go on to the explanation? What, why did Jesus speak in parables? Um, you would think that a practical illustration, a very simple story would be easy to understand. Uh, yet the disciples clearly don't get it, even though it was meant as a simple illustration with easy-to-understand truth. Uh, we'll get to those verses in a second. A parable is intended to reveal truth to believers, but conceal truth from unbelievers. Why would that be? And the answer is fairly straightforward. Because those who reject simple or obvious truth will not be given deeper truth. Okay? Uh, have you ever heard the verse, uh, do not cast your pearls before swine? Right? I mean, there are deep and beautiful truths about God that we don't want to just throw out in front of people who won't appreciate them. And so, you know, the gospel message itself is deep and truthful. Um, but, so, what are some uh, you know, examples of obvious truth? Um, creation. It's obvious that God created the world. I don't know about you, but sometimes I'll walk through the woods or walk around. Uh, do, do we have any scuba divers out there? Anybody scuba dive? I'll do some scuba diving. And, you know, when you go out and you go into these places and you really look, it's just amazing what you see. And you see God's handiwork. And the Bible says that those who walk through creation are without excuse, right? God is the obvious creator of all these things. So um, the next thing is that those who are intent on finding truth will find it. Not only that, God promises to take us deeper if we're looking. Isn't that pretty cool? Uh, the promise of Jesus is seek and you shall find, right? If we seek, God is faithful to be an abundant provider of truth, of knowledge, and of wisdom. Seek and you'll find, you shall find. Ask and it shall be given unto you. Knock and the door will be open. But there's a problem with this for people who are not yet believers. To find, we must be, have been seeking something in particular, Right? You can't just, you're not out seeking if you're not looking for something in particular. To ask, we must ask someone in particular. 
and to knock, we must be expecting some particular person to be behind the door, right? So the problem is that people know who they will find when they seek. They know who will answer them, and they know who is behind the door. They're just not interested to meet him. And that's the big part of this parable, right? The parable, uh, the, the seed that was thrown on the pathway and the seed that was thrown in the rocky soil. And so, if they will not seek, they will not ask, and they will not knock for fear of changing their lives. Isn't that pretty ironic? I don't know about you, but a lot of the people that I talk to who don't know the Lord are miserable. They hate their lives, and the only thing they, they keep saying is, I wish my life would change. Yet, when Jesus holds out the promise of a better life, a changed life, most would rather be comfortable in their misery than joyful and a changed and better life. Isn't that, isn't that crazy? Let's look at Mark 4, 10, 11. When he was alone, the twelve and the others around him asked him about the parables. And he told them, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you. But to those on the outside, everything is said in parables. The parable itself is not so hard to understand, but it begs a response. The parable is a call to a fruitful life. This parable is a call to join a fruitful kingdom. Not only fruitful in the earthly sense with a seven or tenfold harvest, but, this is, uh, but it's fruitful with a miraculous harvest of 30, 60, or 100-fold um, fruits. And clearly the listeners would have understood this simple call even if they did not understand all of the parallels to this spiritual kingdom. There's a lot in this parable, but there's some simple truths there. Jesus is calling them out to meet him and to, meet, um, to become a part of the kingdom. So the disciples and others are seeking further clarification with Jesus, who's now letting them in on the deeper secrets of this kingdom. Most of you like to be let in on secrets, right? That's pretty cool. Do you like to be an insider? We all like to be insiders. So tonight I'm going to let you in on a few secrets, some of them which you might know, others you might not know. And uh, these are the, there's three great mysteries in the church. Have you ever seen mysteries in the Bible, right? So what are they? The first one is in Colossians 1:20 to 27, right? This mystery is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Colossians says, now I rejoice uh, in what was suffered for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church, I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations but is now disclosed to the saints. To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. This is a fantastic uh, um, a secret that was kept hidden from the ages throughout all time until it was revealed to Paul and the apostles here. I'll tell you more about why it was, why it was um, uh, held secret in a minute. But that Christ would be in you, that you could be born again, right, of the seed of Jesus, right? That's the point here. The second mystery is in Ephesians 2, 11, 13, 11 to 13. 
The promise was not for the Jews only, but for the Gentiles also. The Gentiles would be partakers of the kingdom of God along with the nation of Israel. Ephesians 2 says, Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, that done in the body by the hands of men, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenant of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Right, so this was another great mystery that was held, held back from time that the Gentiles, that's, I think, most of us, could be uh, partakers of the kingdom of God. And the third mystery is this. It's really kind of two combined, but it's, it's uh, uh, Ephesians chapter 3, um, and that we have access to God. We have access to um, the throne of God directly, right? In the Old Testament times, only the high priest could enter the Holy of Holies. Now we don't have that anymore. We can go to God directly because we have God's spirit living within us. Ephesians 3 says, although I am less than the least of all God's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past has been kept hidden in God who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through him in faith we may approach God with freedom and confidence. Two things, we have access to God and the second one is that the mystery of the church would be made known to all principalities and kingdoms in, heaven, in the heavens, right? And um, rulers and authorities. So we, the church, are for God's glory and to manifest God's glory here now. Why are there such mysteries in the Bible? Why wouldn't God have revealed these truths earlier by the prophets? Timing is the key thing. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 2, 6, 10 for an answer. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we speak of God's secret wisdom, a wisdom that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, it is written, No eye has seen, nor ear has heard, no mind is conceived, but God is prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed it to us by his spirit. So all these great mysteries were kept hidden because if Satan and his um, kingdom, if they knew what Jesus was going to bring to us, Christ in us means that every one of you who has Christ in you has the capability to be like Jesus, right? You can walk like him. You can have the power of his resurrection in your life, right? Um, if, if the devil knew that, he never would have crucified Jesus. He would have come up with a different plan. <laughs> so um, that, was, that was the reason for that. But at the time Jesus was speaking, uh, these particular things had to remain hidden. These are truths conveyed to the church after Jesus' death and resurrection. So not at the time that he was speaking now. But even at the end, Jesus revealed the reality of his death on the cross only to his handful of disciples. And even then, they did not really understand or want to accept um, these things, uh, except that later they were re revealed by the Spirit. 
So the parable is intended to reveal truth to the disciples and that those and those that were with him. There were others that were hanging around looking for nuggets of truth as well, and they got them. And Jesus delivers the explanation that they were looking for. So then comes another warning. So a third, sort of a third, listen, heads up warning. So I think Jesus is starting to get pretty serious here. Um, Mark 4.12 says this. They spoke in parables so that they may be ever seeing but never perceiving and ever hearing but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. This is kind of a, a sarcastic um, uh, saying from Isaiah that um, the people, you know, God forbid that they should actually listen and believe. Um, but in Isaiah's day, that was not going to happen. So this is a, a quote from Isaiah. Uh, how many of you guys have seen the movie Back to the Future? Like that movie, right? All you guys from the 80s, right? <laughs> um, you remember uh, the goofy character McFly, right? And what's the name of that big guy that used to beat him up? Biff, right, right. And so Biff used to go up to... Uh, McFly, right? And he used to ask him some question and McFly wouldn't know how to answer and he'd bang him on the forehead and he'd say, McFly, right? What's the matter with you? Don't you know anything? And so I call this next question the McFly question because Jesus says to him, why don't you know this parable? This is the easy one. I got lots more parables that are coming. You know, this is like parable 101 and I want to take you up to like 801, right? And um, so in Mark 14, 13, he says, he says this to them. He says, um, don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand any parable? And he's just, you know, just doing one of these. The implication is that the truths in this parable are somewhat basic, but that there are other parables are coming that are more challenging. And the overall emphasis for us in this is that Jesus' message is a challenge for all of us, Right? to unbelievers, and even to his followers. So Jesus is thinking, here, here's an easy one, guys. And the disciples come and said, you know, hey, we don't get it. So here's the explanation. Jesus says, um, let's read Mark 14 to 20. Um, this is the explanation of the parable that came before. The sower sows the word, and these are they by the wayside where the word is sown. When they have heard, Satan comes immediately and takes away the word that was sown in their hearts. And these are they likewise which are sown on stony ground, who, when they heard the word, immediately receive it with gladness. And they have no root in themselves, and so endure it for a time. Afterward, when affliction or persecution arises for the word's sake, immediately they are offended. And these are they which are sown among thorns, such as hear the word, and the, hear the word, and the cares of this world, and the deceitfulness of riches, and the lusts of other things entering in, choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. And these are they which are sown on good ground, such as hear the word and receive it and bring forth fruit, some 30-fold, some 60, and some 100. So now we see that the seed represents the word, right? The good news of the gospel, the good news of the coming kingdom of God, right? The kingdom of God is at hand. The sower is sowing spiritual seed, the good news of salvation from our lives of sin. No doubt that Jesus was thinking of himself uh, as the sower, right? Because he, does, he, does, he had been doing that work of sowing the word uh, all along. In fact, though, while not represented in the parallel, um, 
parallel parables of the sower in the other Gospels. There's another um, parable called the parable of the wheat and tares, which actually illustrates Jesus as the sower. We'll just take a look at that in Matthew 13, where he says, um, the one who sowed the good seed is the son of man, right? It's sort of the, the explanation to the parable of the wheat and tares. So we know that Jesus definitely looks upon himself as the sower. Um, but the emphasis, again, is in this parable is on the seed and on the soils, not on the sower. But the story begins with the sower, and Jesus, and 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 also we know that Jesus sees himself as the, as the sower from the other from the other parable. So we know that's important. Why is it important? Nothing else in the story happens without the sower, does it? If the sower doesn't show up, none of the rest of it happens. So. Um, Although the sower has little to do with the end result of the seed sown, if he never threw it, there wouldn't be any harvest. So let's look at the explanation of the seed and how it was sown in the different soils. Uh, some of the seed fell on the pathway. This represents people with hard hearts, right? These are people who hear the message, but Satan comes and takes it away. So the image of the birds coming down onto the pathway, plucking the seed off and, and, and taking it away uh, is similar to the image of Satan coming in to someone who hears the word and never really lets it get into their heart, right? So it kind of begs a question. Is Satan real? Right? I'm going to tell you that um, I should have told you earlier, um, I became a Christian uh, a little bit later in life when I was about 28, uh, which means I've been a Christian for about six years now. <laughs> Maybe not so much, okay. Um, <laughs> um, and for about the first five or six years of, of my walk, um, my wife and I belonged to a home church group, which is very similar to the life groups that you guys are in. You know, 10 or 12 people. We used to meet every week, but I didn't go to church. And um, uh, just at that time, I didn't believe that Satan was real, even though I'd been a believer for quite some time. And uh, so something happened in our life group, uh, our, our home group one time, where we decided that we were too insular. We were just, you know, meeting to pray and study, and we were growing, but we weren't doing any, I didn't think of it in these terms, but we weren't doing any sowing. We weren't meeting with you know people outside sharing our faith doing any of that so what we decided to do is go and um, to sign up and and uh, maybe we would do some volunteer work so this was when I was in Singapore and uh, they every year would put on a big volunteer night where every organization would put out their needs for for volunteers and you could go and and, and, and visit with them well I'm gonna make a very long story extremely short we went to this thing and uh, we decided we were going to sign up for some things, and we took all the literature. And uh, the next morning, the next day, within the next 24 hours, every single person in our group was attacked. And I'm not talking about, um, you know, stub their toe on the office desk and, you know, whatever. Um, <clears throat> I was uh, hit by a car. I was in another car. I was hit by a car moving five miles an hour, by another car going 60 miles an hour. Um, the other car was crushed into an accordion this big. I walked out. I didn't even feel the bump. You, you believe that? I just, it, it was like, 
What just happened? Oh, the car just crashed into us at 60 miles an hour. Um, <laughs> yeah, it was just kind of like that. And I was in a taxi, and the, and the taxi, um, there was, it wasn't even dented. And the other car was crushed like an accordion, and the other two guys got out unharmed. And I said, guys, I'd like to stay on top, but I have to go home. And I was right near. I was within walking distance of my house. Loved to chat. But my son uh, was really sick. And the doctor said, get him to the emergency room right away, which is why I was going home. So I ran up. My wife and I went took him to the hospital. And he had some rare uh, blood condition. Uh, his blood platelet level had dropped to like, you know, 1% of what it was supposed to be. Um, and other people were attacked, like one uh, lady was attacked at knife point. Singapore's the safest place in the world. And on and on the stories go. Uh, at the end of the week, uh, Peter's condition was healed, and there was a, an obvious, miraculous healing that the doctors couldn't believe. Um, but what happened was, about a week later, a, a, a few weeks later, we got together with our group, and we started recounting what happened on that day and sort of connecting all the dots, you know? And I went away from that meeting and saying, Satan's not just the guy with the cartoon and the thing, you know, this is real. And I got really scared. And I went home and Patty and I went home. And so, you know, if this is what's gonna happen when we go out to share, share our faith, I'm not up for this. I don't, I mean, he tried to kill my son, he tried to kill me, tried to kill my friends. I mean, we're not talking about getting a cold. I mean, this is like, you know, pretty serious stuff. So I, I hate to admit it, but this is what happened. We put our Bibles away, and we just said, fine, if that's the way it's going to be. I didn't go to my group anymore. I didn't read my Bible. I didn't do anything for six months. And then six months later, the Holy Spirit woke me up and said, you know, get to it. And I figured, well, I, I need to get equipped. And so I did. So the next part of my journey was to get equipped for this kind of spiritual warfare, right? So, uh, if you ever ask me if Satan's real, I have a good answer for you. Um, so, Satan's part in this is that he snatches that word away from the hearts. Some of the seed fell on rocky soil. That represents a shallow heart. They receive the word with gladness. They hang in there for a while. Um, but they don't have any root. And those people fall away when things get difficult. So maybe they get offended when God doesn't show up to rescue them from the difficult time. One thing I can assure you of, difficult times are going to come. God will test us. Satan will tempt us. One thing to remember, when the testing comes from God, it's meant to build you up, right? When the attacks come from Satan, it's meant to tear you down. So remember, not every test is something that's going to tear you down. You know, God will test us in different ways. Some of the seed was choked out by the thorns and did not bear fruit. And this represents those with strangled hearts, okay? Um, the cares of this world, the desire for riches, and the lust of this world choke out the word from our lives and make it unproductive. Certainly, we all struggle with these things. But the operative word is fruit. If you're producing bad fruit, or if you're producing no fruit, you're not a disciple of Jesus, I've always struggled with whether this passage refers to believers who got sidetracked by the things of this world, the so-called lukewarm Christians, or whether it was a salvation issue. And in my own heart, because maybe I struggle with things of the world every now and then, 
uh, I was kind of hoping that it was, you know, um, referring to, uh, you know, lukewarm Christians and that it wasn't a salvation issue. But now it appears to me, you know, especially in this study, that it appears to me this parable is talking about salvation. The, the concept, the whole theme of the parable is salvation. So the context begs for an understanding that this is actually a salvation issue and not just sort of a hot, cold, lukewarm issue. In uh, Matthew chapter 3, uh, just as an example of this, uh, Jesus talks about judging a tree by its fruit, right? You know this one, uh, Matthew 3.10? Um, and he says, And I'll also the axe is laid unto the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bring forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Okay, notice it doesn't say that every tree which, does, which bears bad fruit is cut down. It said which does not bring forth good fruit. All right, so we've got a bad fruit issue and a no fruit issue, right? So, and what happens to the tree that doesn't, doesn't bear fruit? It's thrown into the fire. Okay, um, you know, I'm starting to get a little bit more clear on that now. Um, and the last one is some of the seed was sown on good ground, and it did bear much fruit, 30, 60, and 100-fold, as we talked about. And those, uh, this represents those people with receptive hearts. These are people who hear the message, they receive it, and then they bear fruit in their lives. <clears throat> now, I don't know about you, when I kind of you know, meet people and walk around, I can't really tell if people are not Christians or if they're not saved. I can't, I can't really tell. I, like, mm, uh, I, don't, I don't know. Or a Christian, you know, they, someone who says they're a Christian, but they're really not saved, I could never tell that. But the one thing I can tell you is that oftentimes I can discern if people are God's children, if they are born again, if they ha are spirit-filled. Why? How can I tell? By the fruit, right? So you, you know someone, you get to know them, or you just observe them, and you see the fruit, right? Uh, love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, all these things, right? If you observe these things in people, you go, whoa, they're kind of like different than the rest of the people. A good chance that they know God. So that's, that's, um, you know, that's the parable and Jesus' explanation of it. I have some concluding remarks for you. The first one is this. If you don't have a sower, you don't have a harvest, right? So your job is to sow. But another message of this parable is that if you're a sower, and you, or maybe you're not a sower yet, but you're, 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 you want to be, um, don't get discouraged about the results. There's four kinds of soil here in this message, right? Three of them are unproductive. What that says is that when you throw a seed, right, your witness, your testimony, when you throw that out there, Chances are pretty good it's going to fall on unproductive soil. It's really, if you sow that seed, if you give that testimony, you encourage someone about the Lord, uh, you've done your part, and it's up to the Holy Spirit to do the rest. So don't get discouraged. Every Christian should be a sower. One of the points of the parable that, is that Jesus was a sower. He came to this earth to show us how to live. We're to be like him. Jesus was a sower. We should be sowers. 
Here's another interesting one. We saw from this parable that the seed is the word of God. But if you look at John 1, 1, it says that Jesus is the word of God, right? Jesus is the word. So, in my intellectual greatness here in Logic 101, I conclude that Jesus is both the sower and the seed. But that's pretty interesting when you think about it. He's the sower and the seed. If you hear and receive the word of God, you're receiving the seed, but you're also receiving Jesus, right? Isn't that interesting? That seed that gets implanted within you, if you're truly born again, it's an incorruptible seed. Nothing can happen to that seed. Nothing, no how, right? It's incorruptible seed when you are born into the kingdom of God. This parable and others underscore the natural relationship between the supernatural realm and the physical realm. I say natural. What Jesus is trying to get the um, disciples used to here is that, hey, the kingdom of God is coming, and it's going to be different. It's not going to be all about what you see. It's going to be all about what you hear and see through your spiritual eyes. So it's going to be different. And he's trying to convey that, and he, and he makes that point very vivid with that 30, 60, 100-fold. This is going to be special. It's going to be different. And most importantly, this parable is about the soils, which re represent the response of the hearers. Jesus' words demand a response. His great desire is a response from you that says, yes. I will join you. I want to enter into your kingdom. I want to join you in your mission. He desperately wants you to say yes to him. So, how about you? What's your response today? I think this message gives us pause to think on a lot of levels, and not just to those who are new to uh, a setting like this, but to all of us. The gospel says that Jesus came into this world to save us from our sin and our fleshly desires. And he did this by sacrificing himself upon the altar called the cross. He suffered a gruesome death so that we might uh, be spared from eternal separation from God, right? Jesus rose again to new life on the third day, resurrected in power, and he defeated death itself. Jesus now still lives, and his promise is that if we receive him, we would be born again, and he will plant his seed in our hearts, this incorruptible seed, that we might live in this life by his mighty power, and that we would live forever in his presence and in the midst of his glory. Are you a hearer of this message? What is your response? Is this your first time hearing this message? Or have you actually heard it before and it was snatched away before? It's interesting that the farmer sows onto his field every season. So maybe this is another season for you and it's maybe uh, you're hearing it again and wondering if you should pursue this further as those did that were with the disciples, wanted to check it out. Has your heart been hard? Has your heart been shallow? 
If you'd like to respond to Jesus' invitation to be a part of the kingdom of God, I invite you to talk with Michael or myself or any of the, the folks here at Genesis who know a lot about what's going on in the kingdom of God. These people can point you to him if you, if you would ask. <clears throat> Has your heart been strangled? Have you been choked off by the world? If you've confessed Jesus as your Savior, but you've fallen off, you've fallen away, or you know that you're not producing good fruit in your life, I also urge you to talk to someone here so that we can help you change your direction in your life and so that you can become a bearer of good fruit. But amazingly, I rejoice greatly and those of you who have committed yourselves to the kingdom of God, to the study of his word, and the many of you here who are producers of good fruit, it just brings me amazing joy. Uh, this week, as Michael said, myself and two other elders at Hope, Ian and Todd, who are here tonight, uh, had the chance to um, travel with a bunch of guys here from Genesis. And... Uh, it was amazing. I can tell you that these guys, we had every excuse to be miserable and complaining. We got to Raleigh, North Carolina at 2 o'clock in the morning. We got up at 7, and we went all day, and we did stuff at night, and we got up, and we just kept going. And then when we were leaving, the ride was late. I mean, we had every excuse to be complaining and miserable and whatever. Uh, yet, I can tell you with these guys, I watched them, and I observed their fruit, and I got to tell you, I didn't see one complaint. There was not one, um, you know, exclamation of misery. There was nothing but encouragement and um, patience and kindness towards one another. That's pretty amazing. So this is the kind of uh, fruit that Genesis is producing right now, and you should be thankful. So um, God's doing amazing things here, and uh, I think we should pray and thank him for that. Let's pray. Lord and Heavenly Father, I thank you for what you are doing here in this place. I thank you for your presence here in this place. I thank you that you are the God called Emmanuel, the God who is with us. You are mighty and great, and you are mighty, your hand is mighty to save. Lord, I thank you for this word tonight. Lord, I thank you that it causes us to just sit and examine who we are, to examine whether we have receptive hearts or we have hearts that are hard or shallow or hearts that have been strangled by the cares of this world. Lord, would you, by your Holy Spirit, reveal to us uh, our condition even right now, even this evening. Lord, teach us, show us, reveal to us what we need to hear from you tonight. Why don't we just sit for a minute and quiet and reflect on these words tonight. And I'll bring us back with a closing prayer.
Lord, I thank you. I praise you for the truth that you guard so intently. Lord, help us to be guardians of your truth and help us to be those that sow your truth. Lord, help us to be sowers that will reap a harvest for you, for your glory. And Lord, I pray for those here tonight that uh, may have heard from you that uh, for whom these words have evoked a response that uh, may have even surprised them. Lord, give them the courage to, uh, to reach out to those around them and to, uh, to share what uh, you have told them. Lord, I thank you for your blessings upon them and your blessings upon this ministry. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Genesis is a ministry of Hope Christian Church. We invite you to find out more by visiting our website at genesisthejourney.com.